Yeah, it's good to see you. We, uh, you know, when when I signed up for this, uh, or at least agreed to go to the uh, um, ARC thing, um, I really didn't have a lot of expectation, and so uh, getting to hang out with you was a was a really pleasant uh, was really a pleasant surprise and addition to the whole thing. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't I didn't expect I didn't really expect to see so much of like the IDW world there actually i'm not yeah. sure why i didn't but uh but yeah it felt like a huge amount of people who i pay attention to on the internet all happened to be there and um uh so yeah it was a real pleasure to just meet everybody but in particular it was a lot of fun to, to hang out with you and get a chance to get to know each other uh more like I, you know i had a lot of conversations with people but i think you, you and i actually kind of like got to know each other as human beings a little bit more yeah yeah well in physical space at least yeah. where you know and it was so i watched i'm I put this in a video a couple of days ago but i um dave rubin did a talk with philippa stroud uh before the conference and she sort of laid out a little bit of how this conference emerged you know yeah. if 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 me and a couple of friends here locally get an idea to do something you know maybe we'll have a meetup but uh when Paul Marshall and Jordan Peterson and the Strouds get an idea. They have a, you know, I don't know. I'm sure that conference costs between five and six figures. <laughs> they put that thing together. So, yeah, definitely. I would think six figures for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, well, well where was... do we want to start talking about this thing? Or what do we want to start talking about, first of all? Yeah, I mean... I think I was interested in like what what were your big takeaways like and yeah maybe we'll start there. Well, my take on the conference evolved during the conference because I didn't quite know what to expect when I got the app and started scrolling through who was going to be there. It was like, oh, these aren't these aren't randos and, <laughs> and yeah. the usual people I spend my time with. These are these are people with titles and names and positions and wealth. And and then when the program came out and it was like, oh, we've got political figures and um, you know people who are interested in international policy and all of this. I you know at that point I sort of got cold feet and wondered. Should I even be there? I don't know if this is this is my this these are my people or this is my jam. But I I was already committed to it and was like, okay, well let's let's just go and see what happens. And then the first day, um, the first day, yeah, when they, especially when they had a lot of the political speakers speakers, I thought I remember way back early with Jordan Peterson why he didn't like church or preachers because preachers lied. And what he meant by lied were they said things that would gain them status and following instead of saying what they really thought. And listening to a lot of the political speeches, I thought politicians lie at least as bad as pastors. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so then day one, on one hand, it was sort of, some of the speakers just seemed okay. I can hear a lot of this stuff on the internet. Um, some of the stuff I don't really care to pay too much attention to at all. But then getting to meet the people sort of around this, you know, in the in that area, that that seemed really cool and important. 
And it was interesting that there were a bunch of uh, people that were sort of in the Peugeot camp who were sort of artists who, who sort of felt a little out of place there too. So it was fun to get to know them and hang out with them. Day two um, wasn't really a, a great day, but day three things began to sort of gel for me. And I began to get an idea of, especially with Peugeot's speech, it was like, okay, this is who are here. This is what they are doing. This is this is what what they are at least trying to do. So um, it the conference grew on me in terms of okay, this is this has value, and um, beyond just I had some frustrations with the format of the conference, but I, I can I can sort of get a sense of what they're doing. There are a lot of conflicted agendas here. One agenda was sort of bring at least the willing remnants of the IDW back together. And that's a lot of who we saw. Except it wasn't, right? Like, yeah. I mean, the, the IDW was there, but they weren't speaking. No. Right? Not, that felt like pretty remarkable to me, actually, to have, uh, you know, the Weinstein brothers, Heather Hying, James Lindsay, Peter Bogosian, like all of sort of, you know, Dave Rubin, kind of, it felt like a lot of Jordan's allies in the original sort of, yeah, sort of idea of the IDW were all present, but were not foregrounded. There was something very interesting to me about that, and very, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, it was great for me, right? Like, uh, because I got the chance to speak with all of those people. And I had really amazing conversations with all of them and the people I've wanted to to chat with for a long time. Um, but it was kind of strange to feel this like the IDW was where the center of the energy was. And then it collapsed. And in some sense, it's like it was coming back together because Jordan had put this thing on, but it wasn't really back together. It was like no. the band's all in town, but they're not together. And I think partly because Jordan sort of moved on from it. Mm -hmm. And it, it was almost the sense of, well, Jordan now has new friends. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all on stage. And the IDW, who, you know, I've done some video work on Eric and Brett. Mm -hmm. And Eric and Brett are really not in sync with the rest of that conference. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. They're not. Well, I, spoke, I spoke extensively to both of them about that. Actually, uh, had a really particularly wonderful conversation with Brett and Heather. But I think that I was. I'll give you my my take on it now. It was got. It, I think it was in some sense similar to you in that it did grow on me, as it went. But my my initial take was when I was invited to come. I was like, I'm not sure if I want to go, right? Part of that was just because I've been, you know, there's been a lot of demands on me and I was very stressed at the time. And it was like one more thing on top of everything else. Um, but the other concern was just how much is this specifically a conservative event? And a politically conservative event. Politically conservative, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a funny thing because there's many ways in which it would be fair to describe me as a conservative. But I also am very much trying to actively escape the polarization of tribalism. And so I don't necessarily want to get captured in things that feel 
it's like I don't I would I, I would I would hesitate to you know be featured on Fox News or hesitate to go to the Republican National Convention and it quite felt like the Republican National Convention on the first two or three speakers right yes it did <laughs> The and, old speaker of the house and the new speaker of the house. And I was at that point so politically uninformed that I was like, who's that guy up there? Yeah. And I think it was Nathan James said, he's the new speaker of the house. I said, yeah. oh, wow. Yeah. Is this the kind of event we're at? Yeah, that's what I felt like, right? I was like, oh, okay. Um, and it was, that was particularly interesting because that was my first like worry. And also a good friend, a mutual friend of ours, um, I asked if he was going and he said no because of that. And I don't want to necessarily get deep into that because uh, I want to drag him into the into a, a fight or anything. But um, but yeah, it was like it was a hesitation. So throughout the event, I had this feeling that I don't know if this is like a new conservative movement and a new conservative alternative to a progressive NGO infrastructure, or if it's a movement that happens to contain a lot of conservatives. And even the that that seemed to be actively in tension amongst the speakers. There was a point in the energy and um, environment talk where uh, Dennis Prager started just lambasting the left and Michael Schellenberger is sitting next to him going like, Hey, I'm still a liberal. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought it was, I thought it was really cringe to be honest. I like, I thought that, that what Prager was doing was, uh, was actively destroying the potential for the type of coalition that can achieve the policy ends that the, that ARC is setting out. So there was that tension, and then there was this very interesting tension around Christianity within it, um, which, uh, so, you know, if we go back to the 1990s and sort of the moral majority and the the kind of the, the, the return of the right to a lot of political power, it was motivated by evangelical Christianity in America. And of course, you know, when America sneezes, the rest of the world catches the flu. So in some sense, our politics are downstreaming around the world. And I had the sense that that it's not clear whether it's that the, there's a there's a sense that I think is fairly universal, though not even universal, right? Because there's I think everyone who's involved, there's the better story part the governments and uh free market governance part and the um social fabric part right there's three primary tracks everyone in the better story part in some sense was grappling with christianity but you know alex epstein doesn't care about christianity at all right Right. So and Bjorn Lomberg, I don't don't think so either. Like at the O2 Arena when Murray and and Peugeot and Peterson are batting these things back and forth, Lomberg looks like he's just not in the right room, right? Um, but amongst the people within the better story part, what the actual relationship to what Christianity is and looks like going forward, um feels 
or for that matter, right? Like we, there was a talk about the West and Judeo-Christian. And it was like, all of this felt very like, um, I don't know what, I don't know what everyone actually means. And I don't know if what speaker A means and what speaker B means are actually particularly well aligned. So I, I had a lot of, I had like, I'm having a great time. I'm meeting lots of people. This is cool. And if this is about a better story, I don't know if the story is coherent at the moment. And at the same time, uh, I I also had that sense of there is that I don't know if the format is fit for purpose. And this was informed by the fact that I had done the Respond project last year, right, with the crew who's trying to organize things around John Bervakey, right? And so they had brought together I think nine speakers and had us all sit down and like hack out. Like we all sat down and said, what are the most important subjects that we need to talk about as far as building a wisdom ecosystem, right? And so then every everything that was, we sort of like threw out all our ideas and then they tried to recognize which ideas were the same and sort of collapse them to a set of some, you know, more coherent ideas. And then once we had a kind of workable set of ideas to, to work with, we were given... Um, we're given the option to basically rank order which which topics were most important to us. And then based on that, we were assigned to try to do working groups. So there were three thinkers and like three facilitators in a room talking for an hour and a half about how to how to get a better wisdom ecology around existential threats or around the role of religion or around embodiment or around the environment. And this is not scalable to 1500 people, but I looked around the room and saw all these people like an Eric Weinstein, like a Brett Weinstein, like a Heather Hying, um, and said, okay, well, how much value is there for them for how much of the their potential to add value is harvested by them just being in the audience and you know maybe this is is prideful on my part but i felt the same about myself right <laughs> like i'm looking at it and i'm saying i i i uh i really enjoyed peugeot's talk and i um i actually got a lot of ben marshall and thought okay here's someone who i want to follow and know more about Paul marshall Paul Marshall, yeah. Was it Paul Marshall or Ben? I thought it was Paul. Yeah, it is Paul Marshall. Paul Marshall. Yeah, yeah. I had I had no idea who he was. And I listened to his talk. I thought, wow, I that was good. I, yeah. I, I I would I was surprised to hear someone be so straightforward and so nuanced about the complexity. He wasn't just hammering on capitalism or hammering for capitalism. He was saying, We've got a lot of issues with our with what yeah, we're doing to... with our economic structures. There are problems. How do we fix them? Let's yeah. be honest about them. Yeah. So I, I like that. But like, you know, listening to say Michael Schellenberger, um, like I, I think there's a lot of value in his message. Um, for me, having him condense it that short and serve it to that audience made it less valuable for me than if I was to listen to a, a podcast interview with him or just go read his Substack, right? And that was kind of how I felt about a lot of the speakers. Um, now, interestingly, the place where the conference hit was 
with Pajot, with Bishop Barron, with Joshua Luke Smith. Yeah. Nice. With the music. Because that's where the bonding, that's like where that, that call to something higher was powerful, you know. And I like I was I broke down in tears uh pretty intensely after um after Joshua Luke Smith's last poem because it was about relationship to a to a dead elder in his family. And I had just lost my father this summer. And so like I kind of, you know, was sitting at a table with you and then Eric came and sat down next to me and all of a sudden I was just gushing tears, right? Um, that to me, that that type of stuff, it it's not going to be the same if you're not in the room. But I wondered like, with that much talent, was that format really fit to purpose to energize people, to help to actually solve a better story, not just to propose a potential better story, but to begin sort of utilizing the energy of the people there, the intelligence of the people there to achieve greater coherence such that then they could go act it out in the world. I, I think those two points um, are really excellent. The coherence of the better story and its underpinnings, because that's where the, the tension with Christianity is. And then the was the format fit for purpose? And I think I think those the first video I made after the first day was we were hearing a lot of sort of in some ways you could say, boy, the boy, wasn't the British Empire great? We just gotta <laughs> get back to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, well, you know, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not here for just the, the facile anti-colonial narrative either, but there, there's a reason, there's a reason modernity is receding and liberalism is creaking and it's being assaulted from the left. And you're all sort of lined up to fight the wokes over on the left, but the, um, you know, other critics from the left, let's say, you know, the Weinsteins, for example, a lot of the IDW, a lot of the IDW criticisms of liberalism are were sort of from the left and the right. And then the religious uh, critiques of liberalism from the right. So I, I think as the conference went on, and especially with Peugeot's speech, and and to a certain degree, Bishop Barron's speech, they were then able to integrate more of a little bit more of that critique there. But the was the format fit for purpose, I think, is a is a huge issue because, number one, it wasn't at all clear from the format what their purpose was. Yeah. And two. By listening to some of the speeches, especially by some of the leaders, um, if in fact you want to sort of create a network, this this format really didn't make a lot of sense because most of us either either we've heard most of what was spoken before, or we can find it on YouTube if we want to go look it up. This mm -hmm. this isn't a case where you had a bunch of neophytes in the room and you're going to inform them about all these things. You had a lot of extremely well-connected, well-informed people in the room and you're basically having them sit in a room and listen to, you know, direct information. Yeah, it's, and it's like, 
it's Rip monological Rip? it's monological rather than or, or sort of obviously there is a strong dialogical element in the networking that happens implicitly but there's very little structuring of that there were the dinners right um but aside from listen to the ta speakers and then go talk amongst yourselves there wasn't any facilitation of how that talking would take place right um which to me i i just think that 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 that, that model doesn't achieve as much as it could and it's probably not a you had when you think about the value of the time I mean, it was a remarkable feat that you got 1,500 people of that caliber in that space at the same time, and you had their full attention for the most part. Mm -hmm. That is a huge accomplishment. But then you also have the responsibility to, okay, you've got that now. What are you going to do with it? And I felt most people probably salvaged the time by doing a lot of what we did, which was okay, they're not really facilitating networking here. So I'm going to go and do some of that on my own. Yeah, I ended up skipping half the talks on the second day and more than half on the third day to just give myself opportunities to talk to the people that I was interested in in talking to. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm excited to see in some sense all the talks come out because there's some of them, you know, that I maybe will benefit from. But it just felt like, you know, like my conversation with Brett and Heather was probably the highlight of my whole time over there. Right. Um, it was incredibly rich and intense and like forwarded my thinking in important ways. Hmm. Um, and so it was like, for me, it was more valuable to go seek those opportunities than to go to a talk that may or may not end up being really good. Like the, the, the the inconsistency of the conference for me was really crystallized by uh, Jonathan Paju and then Agu Iroquois. I think it's yeah, Agu Iroquois. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it was quite the, amusing. The preachers and the politicians, frankly, had a really bad showing at this conference. A lot of the preachers, too, were just like... Man, it was really funny to sit next to Not you. all the preachers, though, but yeah. <laughs> Bishop Barron was good. Yes. Bishop Barron was good. And Paul Stroud was good. Okay, I didn't see that one. And uh, that one hasn't been on, on YouTube yet. He okay. he and Philippa are really key in terms of understanding what they want to do here. And okay. they're they don't have the profile of Jordan Peterson, at least not mm-hmm. internationally. But the you see so let, let me... thing, I probably should have I didn't seek, I mean, you know, thinking back on it, I probably should have tried to sit down with Brett and Heather and, you know, I had a little bit more interaction with Eric, but what I, what I didn't want to spend my time doing was basically sitting down and because of a status differential, just hearing a lecture about things that I've heard them talk for hours on YouTube anyway. Um, yeah. I was, I, I don't, was, maybe, maybe it didn't go that way with Brett and Heather. It was not that way at all. It was Good. extremely, it felt like a, a, a peer-to-peer conversation that was really, really rich. Good. Um, I had a, I had a small chat with Eric, which felt more the other way. And yeah. I lost interest in it because it was like, sort of like, I, I, I know your rap, Eric. I want to talk to you about it. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and 
you never know what the circumstances are that give rise to that. And we've all got many demands on our attention. So we all kind of go to, toward default. So I'd love to have a chat with Eric in the future. Um, but in that particular case, I was just sort of like, uh, I, I'm not here to do the king in his court with you. Like, um, that's not interesting to me. Um, but no, with Brett and Heather, it was incredibly mutual and really, really, really rich. So I wanted to go back to, right now, I feel like I'm mostly critiquing it, but I wanted to like, so I had my critiques as the as the event went along. And then um, uh, this woman, Christina, got me backstage passes afterwards. And I was, uh, I was able to go talk to Jordan. And Jordan asked me how, what I thought of the event. And I was kind of cagey. I was like, well, it was great. There were some things that I, that I think could be better, right? <laughs> um, and I, afterwards, I was like, ah, it's probably not the right time to talk to him about you know like it would have been better to just be it was great right just to focus on the positive because i think you know, he's probably just super super exhausted by the end of that i, I don't know if he gets exhausted <laughs> sure, i really maybe. don't i've maybe seen him do it at times where i thought dude, he should be taking a nap and he's still hard <laughs> you know like when i've interacted with jordan before he's been really really good at attending to yep. who he's talking to and he yep. did not seem like that in, in the green room particularly um and so that I perceived as like, okay, he's done, right? But in any event, afterwards, I was thinking about that interaction and I was thinking that there's a certain, that we've sort of, that if you've been following Jordan long enough, the stuff that he does and the stuff that happens around him, you can, you become a slightly habituated to. You don't really recognize how much of a miracle it is. And so I thought about it in retrospect and I said, okay, Yes, it had flaws. There's a lot that I would like to give them feedback on on how it could grow uh, in certain ways. Um, and at the same time, you know, we were in the O2 arena and it's packed, it's sold out. And you think about how in 2018, the, the O2 arena with him and Sam Harris and Douglas Murray for the first time, and it was astonishing, like, like it was completely unheard of in the history of public intellectuals, you know, at least in the last, you know, 70 years to have that kind of impact. And all of that was happening while at the same time, the, the Gaza protests are happening, you know, just a few streets away. Um, and so to, to see the type of potential that has catalyzed around peterson and his work and the the good faith attempt that's being made to actually try to forward something that improves the world there is remarkable and you know i don't think that a kind of it's it, it felt like a hybrid i suppose it's like a hybrid between a pastoral convention a political convention and an academic convention and I don't think that a model that's based on that can achieve what they're aiming for. But if you treat it as that, it was remarkably well done for the most part, is my sense. I haven't been to too many of them, so I don't know how common that sort of very up and down nature of the talks is, but I suspect that that's more the norm than than the exception. Yeah. Yeah, the kind, kind of talks are never even. I mean, there's always talks that stand out. But... I think I think if they if this organization wants to 
really achieve some of their goals, I think you're exactly right that they have to think far more strategically about process and um, the kinds of events that they want to create to create the kinds of outcomes they say they're looking for. Yeah. You know, it with even just with um, estuary and the corner, we've done a fair amount of thinking about, even though the events sort of happen haphazardly, those of us who have been working on them, especially putting together events like the Chino event, have have done a fair amount of thinking about okay what's our what's our goal and what kind of facilitation do we want to do in order to achieve that goal and i thought that the i i was it was remarkable to me that with people of this caliber especially you know, especially if it, this isn't just, let's say, politicians trying to do something because politicians don't necessarily, in my opinion, usually figure out the best kind of process things to achieve their goals. They're usually just sort of ham fisted and direct. Whereas in terms of pastoral ministry, religious people are constantly, at least Protestants, I don't know about Orthodox and Catholics, but Protestants are constantly looking at processes. Yeah. About what outcomes do we want with people? And this this to me gets more in line with a lot of the work that you do, because your events are not here. I'm going to rent a room and we're all going to sit in here and Rafe is going to talk to you for 10 hours about embodiment. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there's something there's something that betrays the uh, the cause in the approach like that. Well, so just take the idea of the better story right now i discovered as a teacher that stories are more effective in impacting students than facts are yep okay so i started to tell personal stories and then i discovered jordan peterson's work and i discovered archetypal stories and that these these types of stories can have even in some sense, they have a different type of power than anecdotal stories. They're both really powerful, but together they play really interestingly. And songs tell stories and bring people into story in a really profound way. And what, but from the motor learning constraints led literature, the kind of the idea that just states out is that the more that learning happens sort of internally, and the less it's, the more you can get an emergent bottom up learning from the student the more impactful it is. Yes. And so at, at, uh, at our, at our week long events, we have one night where we tell a, a story. My friend, Aaron Cantor usually tells a story that's come from the grim, grim, uh, fairy tales. And then he, he does some really amazing magic to make that story incredibly vibrant. Um, and then we, we feed the story images. And then afterwards we start to ask like, what lessons could that story offer us today? And so there's a there's a dialogical component that comes out right away. And then, then we'll do a night where we actually ask people to tell the story of their own experience at the event. Tell it as if it's an epic myth. And, and then it's theatrical and everyone has this incredible 
it, it coheres people so powerfully. It's really interesting. And then on, at the, on the last day, I will give the kind of synthesis, monological, this is what this is all about. This is the history of it, right? And I, but I still start with story, right? I don't actually start with theory. I start with a story that, 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 that kind of contains it. Um, and then we have a question and answer and dialogue session after that. But that's after all this embodied work. And so I, I bring that up because like looking at this conference, it's like, it would have been very interesting to be separated into groups. I don't know how you would have done it with 1500 people, but to say, okay, you've listened to, to the first three talks. What is the story of ARC? What is the story of ARC? Do you believe in the story of ARC? What would you need to believe in the story of ARC? What is the better story to you? How do we relate that to Christianity? How do we relate that to energy policy? What is the social fabric we're trying to put back together? Uh, to me, that would that would stick actually much better in the heads of the people. And it would refine what the message is. And it would also give a much better potential for feedback. So if you're if you're running ARC and you want to you want to tell a better story, sure, but you want to also know that that better story is going to have an impact. So you don't just want it to be a story. You want it to be a story that goes out and motivates actions. But then you have to ask, you need a feedback system that says it is or isn't. And these elements of it are working or these elements of it aren't. And so if you engage the dialogical and you get all those people working on the ideas, then you create a valve that can go back to the top. Right. You, yep. could, you could have a facilitator there copying it down. You could collate it across all these things and then you could feed it back to Philippa and Paul and Jordan. And they could be like, oh, this landed. This didn't. Right. And then hopefully, you know, six months down the later, you can say, hey, you know, here here's the hyper responders to this message. And we reached out to them and talked to them. And here's what they've done with their experience at Arc since then. That accords with our goals. Here's what's missing, et cetera. And I think that uh, it's very easy to imagine a lot of this dissipating without that kind of structure. And it, it's funny because one of the first interviews I listened to with John Verbeke, he said, okay, this, they asked him about his relationship to Jordan's work. And I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but it really struck stuck with me. But he said something like, like, okay, I get it. You have this proposal for pragmatic Christianity, but where are the practices? Like, what do you do with it? You accept a story. You accept Christianity is the best story. And it's the best story because it accords with pragmatic philosophy and evolutionary biology. And then what? Right? Even even though there are, I mean, if you if you would look at the art conference, especially the social fabric talks, and well, th there were practices strewn throughout everything. Uh, your question about facts and stories really hits hard with some of the lectures. Some people just stood up there and it was just, they were just machine gunning facts at us. And it's like, oh, I, yeah. I, I know this. <laughs> but the, I mean, there, there are, there are practices that were highlighted. You know, Warren Farrell was there about, you know, fathering. Um, there are a number of practices 
I, I don't think that's a practice. Okay, but no, right. it, but you have to, there's, there are practices and there are capacities. And yeah. a lot of the things that they're looking for are they're they're trying they're saying we have lost certain capacities mm. and obviously in order to in order to develop capacities that's one of the things that practices do yeah they develop exactly. capacities so this week we're going to be recording a series of rough housing videos so after my interview with jordan there was this huge hunger for this type of resource but we never put it up online um, and the reason that we never put it up online was fundamentally that I, I think was too, I was too, my frame was too martial arts dependent. And because I was looking at the progression of skill into the martial arts, there's all these things that I need to know about a student that I don't feel like I can learn via an online format that means that they can be safe to actually take on the real martial arts side of it. But Aaron Cantor, I mentioned earlier, he has more of a dance background and just, he's just not some, he's done lots of martial arts, but he just doesn't have the same level of competitive self-defense orientation. And he's been really working on like, what could I introduce to anybody? So we're going to do a series of rough housing things. One's going to be adults with adults. One's going to be adults with children. Another's going to be intimate partners. Now, this is the type of thing where where, so Lauren says, why are fathers important? Not exclusively, but one of the one of the areas that he highlights is the importance of rough and tumble play. But ask around you, how many of the fathers in this current generation are actually roughhousing with their children? It's not that many. Really? Right? No. Men, men have been scared away from this. They had didn't get it themselves. They my wife complained, but I did it anyway. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like you know, if you if you read through the comments on the, the 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 my interview with Jordan Peterson, there's lots of people talking about how their wife didn't let them roughhouse with their kids and how that was destructive of their relationship, or you know, their mother didn't allow that in their life. And like in the, in the, in the, um, in the aftermath of it, I got like, we had a, you know, a funnel open for people to come to our retreats. So got a, I got, I took 80 calls in three weeks after the Peterson interview, which was intense. Um, and a lot of them were actually women who had little boys who were intensely physical, who had husbands who were incapable of of engaging with them physically and were desperate to understand where they could go to get support because they're trying to rough house with their kids and the kid is too intense and it's too physical and they're too scared and it's not working. Mm. Right. And so they're like, who can I go? So I have, you know, little ADHD boys all around the country, right. Who yeah. I hooked up with a local parkour or martial arts coach to help them get a little bit of, of, of physicality. So we that that's where the practice thing comes in it's like we you if the traditional role of the father is to roughhouse but our culture has demonized rough and tumble play to such an extent that many of the fathers who are entering many of the young men who are entering fatherhood don't remember what it was like to roughhouse have been told not to all their lives right associated with the violence associated with masculinity with toxicity 
they don't know how to show up for their children like that. They actually need to be educated through a practice. And so this is what I mean about practices. Like the only practice that, the only practice that I can think of that was in some sense vaguely hinted towards was go to church. Hmm. Was that hinted at in the conference? I don't know. Maybe it was. I didn't hear, I didn't hear it a lot. And some of the preachers certainly didn't encourage it. culture. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Yeah. I, I didn't hear that. And uh, how to, and this, you know, like, this is why I want to talk to Jonathan Haidt. This is why I'm going to have a, a follow-up conversation with Warren Farrell. It's like the, the problems that you're highlighting are really, really important, but it's yeah. not enough to say, stop. You have to say, how do we, grow a play culture in the, the wreckage of what we've done how do we grow it's the same actually sorry now I'm, I'm ranting but hopefully it's interesting the, the other area that i've been thinking about a lot is the relationship between men and women you know and that was very much a, a subject right was that we need men and women to actually be able to commit to long-term relationships. So that's fundamental to a thriving society. That's fundamental to the social fabric. And we need to develop, we need to figure out how to develop the capacity for that. People yeah. enter into marriage mm -hmm. with the desire to do so, yeah. but we have not worked on capacities for that. So how do we build that capacity? And, right. and, and so there's, it, it feels like, like I was reading Warren's book and I, I really like Warren. And I, and I think there's Warren Farrell. I, I think there's a lot of wisdom there, but I think that there's a lot of 1960s programming there. And this idea that if we liberate both men and women from their social roles, that it will enter a better, that it will just make things better. Right. Now he wants to liberate men and women from their social roles. And also he wants to recognize the ways in which culture has traditionally been cruel to men and cruel to women right he starts with cruelty to women now he moves to puts cruelty to men but he's saying culture fundamentally asks things of men and women that are not fair maybe and then we should liberate and address the unfairness and then things will be better um someone like mary harrington or louise, louise perry i think are now kind of on the other side of this liberation is is goodness right where they're like, actually, we we tried liberation, and and the only people who really benefited were narcissistic, psychopathic, sexual predator males, right? So maybe we need something different. And the way that I've been framing that is that we need an aspirational model of masculinity and femininity, and that model has to actually be like like Andrew Tate is putting himself forward as an aspirational model for young men. That's not a healthy model. A society does not thrive when young men aspire to be entertains. Jordan Peterson is another aspirational model for men and women. And he, he's doing some really good work in describing his relationships yep. and his dynamics around relationships and how personalities work. Yep. I think there's more to be done there. Yeah. I, I think there's more to be done. Well, Jordan's also a rather extreme. I love the um, the Pierce Morgan 
interview he did actually with Michaela there mm-hmm. um, or the one that led into Michaela. Cause that, yeah, P- Pierce Morgan asked him something about himself and you know, how, what he would say to himself or what he would think of himself. And he said, you know, he's a little much. And, and then that way, Jordan is, he's kind of a, he's kind of an extreme example, but at least he has maintained marriage to his wife um, speaks with fondness and, and still passion about his wife, all of those things, but you're right. We need, and, and we also need models that aren't on screens. Models and stories, models on screens, that's all well and good. But the the real models that people can actually interact with are models in your relational network that you can actually go up to and have a conversation with. Yeah, it's interesting because if we don't, if we have no cultural model at all, like no broad narrative model, then it's hard to recognize Right. Like I felt like one of the reasons why I became a conservative, let's say, when I was a conservative, was because, uh, because yeah, I was a victim of the, of the liberalization of, of sexuality in the, in the alternative, you know, in the, the counterculture community. Um, and I saw that basically there were no men in my community who I wanted to grow up and be like as a father, as a husband right? There's lots of other remarkable thing about things about the men that I grew up with as far as artisticness and vision and any number of other things. But what they weren't was faithful, present, devoted fathers and husbands. And so when I, I grew up sort of thinking of Christians as uh, deluded, old-fashioned, you know, kind of ridiculous people, but I kept running into these Christian families, I started teaching gymnastics and I would have these wonderful kids who came to me and I'd meet their families and their families would love me because I was a great coach to their, and I'd spend some time with them. And I'd realized that they were, they were very devoted Christians. And I would see the sweetness and tenderness and care that was reciprocal between them and how much the fathers were there for their kids. Yep. And I was like, that's, that's who I want to be. Right. Like, that's how I want to be. And um, and it's funny because I was, I was talking to my wife about this recently. I read the Lord of the Rings when I was eight years old, right? And Aragorn and Frodo and Samwise, right? They become that model of aspirational masculinity. And so when I, when I entered my twenties, like I had this idea. You know, really in my teens, I had this idea of myself as like this white knight, right? This shy knight in shining armor. That's who I wanted to be. That's how I wanted to show up for a woman. But it, there's not enough. There's not enough in, in just reading that literature to actually ground it. So after a year of being with my wife and I was like ready to get married right away and I loved her and everything was great, but I didn't have a Christian community. I didn't have anybody telling me this. I, I, uh, I fell in love with another woman, right? Totally unintentionally. She was my study partner in my math class. I chose her because she was attractive, which was a bad idea, but, but, but natural, but natural, (laughs) but I'm 21 years old, right? Or 22 years old. And, uh, and, and so I, I get into class with this, this beautiful woman and, and I tell myself that she is my friend, right? And we're spending time together and she's my friend. And, and then at some point, like 
I realized that like I've been seeing her twice a week for an hour after class, et cetera, for some period of time, like six weeks. And I'd never mentioned that, uh, my wife to her. And so I'm like, oh, you know, this is probably all in my head. And I, I'm like, you know, oh, I, I, I somehow spill the beans that I'm about to get married. And she flushes bright red, right? Like clearly there was a mutual misapprehension of what was happening <laughs> in this relationship. And I ended up feeling like incredibly confused because I just didn't believe that I was capable of feeling these intense feelings for two women at once. I had, it just wasn't possible, right? That wasn't in my frame of reference that that was possible for me, you know, and then get exposed to the manosphere, love economics, all these ideas, polyamory. And I'm like, I'm trying to be a monogamous, stable partner, but there's always these ideas that are gestating around that, that create tensions in the relationship. And so just within the last few years, even though I, I can't really say that I'm a practicing Christian at this stage, like I really adopt the idea that marriage has to be sacramental. You have to treat it as something that is sacred. Um, if you if you think about marriage from an economics lens, it's not going to work. Right? And especially yeah. if you were a, if you imagine that um, if you economize sexuality too, if you if you look at sexuality within that framework, yep. where you're trying to maximize in sort of an evolutionary psychology sense, I'm trying to maximize, yep. um, you know, the the fruit of my loins. It's like yeah, well, that's uh, that's polygamy. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember thinking about this about Jordan, right? Back in the day when he was talking about how like the Darwinian frame is the outermost frame. You can't get past it. I was like, well, why do you have only two children, Jordan? Right? Yeah. How, how, how is that the outermost frame for you? You claim it's the outermost frame, but you don't behave as if it's the outermost frame. No. And so I, you know, I looked at that, you know, I was like, okay, why am I not going to sperm banks? Right. Do I want, like, it, it, am I optimizing myself if I have as many little gene copies out there in the world as possible? But when I imagine what it would be like to know that there were all these little children of me in the world that didn't, that I didn't have a relationship with us, it doesn't sound like an optimum. That sounds, like a horror story to me yeah yeah right so i don't know i feel like i've gotten a little off no but but when it comes to arc i mean that this gets into the question of the coherence and the definition of the better story yeah because for at least many of the headliners certainly for the stroud certainly for peugeot certainly for peterson this question of a, uh, certainly for Louise Perry, Mary Harrington, this question of a preferential, um, a preferential position for monogamy yep. would certainly be articulated. That we want to continue to promote monogamy as our societal standard, mm -hmm. as our societal ideal. That's yeah. what, because yeah. we, we believe it is best for society. And, you know, Louise Perry and others have, have nicely articulated that monogamy isn't, if you're, if you're, if you're imagining we are ruled by the, um, the laws of the jungle, monogamy 
is not sort of in first place. Then you sort of have this this situation where the alpha males collect most, you know, in a, collect most of the mateable females, and then the other males just become drones and worker bees. And yeah. as a civilization, we have said, no, actually, part of what monogamy facilitates is that more men down the line actually get to be fathers. And also, obviously, with polygamy, um, how are all of these offspring actually going to have the kind of relationship with a father like we were just describing with respect to rough and tumble play? Yeah. You're not going to get that. No, no. I mean, that, and that's, you know, like that's the kind of. I think that's the a big part of the point of both Louise Perry and Mary Harrington's books, which I got to read earlier this year, is, uh, you know, Mary Harrington talks about the feminism of care versus the feminism of uh, of liberation, right? And the feminism of care is fundamentally that what what women uniquely bring to the world is this capacity for care, and that when their economic roles were cut down the meaning that they experienced in life was decreased as they were constrained. Um, and there was one, one reaction to that was give us all the freedoms that men have. And the other reaction to us was celebrate us for doing what is most, you know, because it is that even if it's a smaller role, it's still the most central role that exists. Yeah. And, um, and so that, you know, like if you start talking about, Another book that I've been reading recently is called The Genesis of Gender by Abigail Favail, yep. a wonderful book. Yep. And she talks about um, how the idea that a woman is the is someone who self-identifies as a woman originates in nominalism. Yep. And that when we have only efficient causation, we don't have a way to think outside of that. But once we take on formal cause then we have the idea that actually a woman is someone whose biology is organized around the capacity to bring children into the world. And I, I know, right. I've heard, talked to enough people who are strongly identified with feminism to know that a lot of them will balk at that and say, now you're saying we're just baby making machines. But for me, you can't get to an aspirational model of masculinity and femininity that you want a child to grow into without acknowledging this fundamental reality that a woman's body is organized around the capacity to have children and a man's body is organized around the capacity to provide and protect those children, right? Provide for and protect those children. And that if a man's life is not organized in some sense around being that provider protector for children, I think it's a failure, right? It, it, it's a failure to truly launch because that's the highest purpose that I think that we can serve. That's, that's the... That's the instantiation of agape into the life of each individual. And we we are in a social economic system that, you know, obviously when you when you hear this critique of let's say traditional masculinity and femininity, the idea is well we're going to have differentiation. Also, okay, how does that work actually with bringing people and children into the world? You're going to have one woman and one man give birth to 50 children so that all of the other people are sort of sexless we're not they're not actually sexless they're they're they don't do reproduction but they're just all out as worker bees in the world uh, this Elon Musk um, yeah well and and 
instead of instead of this vision where the participation in the participation in the development of the next generation is something that is broadly distributed within the culture mm -hmm. which again has been the vision where um men are workers but they're also fathers women uh often are workers too um but they're also we, mothers they're and always yes, workers yeah like, everyone's working this is something that i think is really uh a, for me there's a frustration point in the dialogue around gender roles or sex roles i don't even like the term gender let's say sex roles is that uh there's a weird way in which it seems to have crystallized in the 1940s and 50s at an extraordinarily historically unique point, right? The idea, the, the, the stay-at-home housewife who doesn't have economic productivity um, is a post-industrial idea, right? It's not, it, it, it's, and, and, and so this is where I get, uh, this gets to the kind of one of the tension points, I think, here, right? You have Warren Farrell, okay, we reached that point, women need liberation, and then men need liberation from the provider-protector role as, as sort of preventing them from being vulnerable, right? And they need access to children. And then you have the, the Mary Harrington and Louise Perry are saying, okay, uh, there needs, sorry, there needs to be... Oops. Have I lost you? I'm here. Can you hear me? I hear you. Should come back on here in a second. Hmm. Oh, here it is. Okay. As I was saying, one of these areas that I think. Sorry, it's it's like bouncing around. But right before we got on, I was on. Twitter and Brett was talking about what he talks about, which is this idea that, okay, the, the traditional religions are metaphorical truths, but metaphorical truths arose in an ancestral environment doesn't reflect the current environment. So we have to, we have to essentially evolve past them and develop new wisdom. Right. And Jonathan Pajot said, truth is truth forever. It's revealed, not made. Right. Yes. And I said, Pajot has a really important point and Weinstein has a really important point and Peugeot by going to revelation is actually preventing any bridge from being made there because because Weinstein is absolutely correct that we don't exist in the past and we face a constant updating problem yep and Peugeot is right that there's aspects of wisdom that are passed down that are completely unchanging you you never we're never if we remain human beings, we will always have to do a sex sex yeah. reality. So if yeah. our current wisdom doesn't understand the reality of sex, it's not. It's a, it's a failure, right? So we can't just progressively update, but also we have to update. Yep. And yep. um, and I think you know where where for me, Pajot's strongest case is show me a story that reaches the limit of what Christianity reached. As far as, as far as symbolically showing us the pathway towards pro-social behavior, right? That's 
you, if you can't get past it, you sort of have to update off of it. Right. And I don't, I think that that is a killer argument. And the other one is just that we're not actually very good at reasoning our way towards better moral rules. So we right. need to be really careful. About because how. the truth is we don't, I mean, this gets back to what we we're talking earlier with respect to practice and theory. Yeah. We like to imagine, we theorize the future and then act it out. The truth is, we, we, it's very messy practice. And at some point, it begins to dawn us uh, that these practices are better than those practices over here. Mm -hmm. And so then we begin to sort of all migrate over to these practices. And then we, you know, and then the process continues again. But this, um, this sort of realization that no we're not theorizing our way into the future we're sort of bumbling our way into the future but hopefully with a little bit of um a little bit of a uh we would say we would in theory in theology a little bit of a hermeneutical cycle here mm -hmm. where we're doing some interpretation and recognizing and then i'll always with you have to be anchored in the past because your your deepest reservoir of wisdom is the past. Yep. And and so that's why you're always keeping an eye on the past and you're always looking and and you're always just going back and forth and back and forth. And no, and I think that's I think that's right. And in terms of how we've sort of worked at this in the corner, we've always sort of had Peugeot, who's like the past. And we've had Verveke, who's like the legacy religions, you know, he's sort of on team Brett with respect to this. And yeah, I'm kind of in the middle saying, yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm not going back. I'm not going to orthodoxy. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, because I actually think orthodoxy continues to evolve itself. I don't think the orthodoxy that we find in 21st century America or Canada is exactly like the orthodoxy we found in, you know, fourth, fifth century Constantinople. Um, a time traveler might be really fascinated by what he found, but he would also feel tremendously out of place and probably really want to have some of what he enjoys in this world, in that world. So it's not so simple. And so actually these two sides have to continue to talk to each other and work on this. Um, and, and because the, the past, the past is always the past and the future is always unknown. And so we're, we're constantly working this. And I think Christianity affords that. And and I think part of what has part of why Christianity is so diverse within its traditions is in fact that we one of the thing one of the advantages that religions have, unlike most science, is that religions sort of keep their legacies alive in broad communities so that even the most crazy progressive uh protestants over here every now and then wake up to something in the orthodox and say hey wait a minute look at that that has value and mm -hmm. it continues interesting yeah i can't say much about that because i'm not embedded in it i guess to to rewind back to that idea of the 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 dialogue between the wisdom of the past and the problems of the future you know like that was one of the really valuable things I found in Peterson when I first encountered his work was I do that's the fundamental conservative progressive yep. dichotomy yep and um I was talking to I had a really fascinating conversation with James Lindsay as well and he was giving his his sort of uh story of Hegel becomes Marx becomes you know all these things and it's really a religion 
And I think there's a lot of uh, analytical depth and, and brilliance to what Lindsay's doing, but I worry that it starts to kind of become, to spin off into a liberals are always wrong. And I don't think that that's useful, right? Um, I think it's very, very unuseful and just obviously untrue, right? Um, bring the slaves was the right thing to do. Um, yeah, it was. We can agree on that. Yeah. Um, you know, liberal democracy is better than the French monarchy was. Uh, but but what what was interesting was I was we were talking he was talking about the the sort of sense that the liberalism almost uh, or sorry not liberalism progressivism tends to sort of descend towards a, a kind of Gnostic assumption and I had this this idea that that it, it, it it's almost a function of a misapprehension of what a developmental cycle looks like. So, and, and I love when, if you can, if you can get all this stuff down into the body, to me, at least for my mind, it works better, right? It's very easy to get up in these airy-fairy concepts where you can say, hey, you know, this is actually how you get better at kicking a soccer ball. Like everybody can kind of viscerally sense what that is. But when you are learning to walk or when you are learning to throw a ball, um, you, you start by limiting the degrees of freedom that are available to you. So when a, a small child throws a ball, they only throw with their arm. And then over time, they learn to incorporate twisting the torso, coming up on the one leg, swinging the other leg. It's my, my uh, camera battery dying. You got to get a little fob for your camera to uh, keep the thing running. Okay. Is there a thing for that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there, there's things for all Send me the stuff. link. I got to. When I'm up there, maybe I should help you redo your uh, your your gear here. Yeah, um, that sounds good. Okay. As I was saying, so you you, a child starts to learn to throw by using only their arm. And then they learn to incorporate their torso. And then they learn to incorporate their hips and their legs. So what they've done is they've taken many degrees of freedom, which the body has, and they've condensed it to create something that's controllable. Now, we, we like to think that development is linear, right? That today we can do X, tomorrow we're going to be able to do X plus one, right. next day we'll do X plus two. But for most developmental processes, what we actually see is a process of progression, stabilization, regression, and then progress. Just watch a child. Just yes. watch a child. <laughs> yeah. And that, that regression phase is actually when the nervous system has reached the end of its potential for improvement with this current degrees of freedom. So you go up, you hit, you just can't get better without trying some new things. Then you open up. Okay. So what if I use, try to coordinate my hips opening as well when I'm throwing? Now, initially, you're actually going to see a decrement in performance. Your body can't stabilize and find the optimum yet with the new degrees of freedom. Then you'll get, you kind of get into the groove of it, and then you keep improving, and then eventually you need to add something new. 
So I had this idea that essentially uh, progressives always think that we're kind of at that at the point of 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 stabilization and that we need to open the degrees of freedom in order to continue to develop. And conservatives are always saying, no, <laughs> no, we're not there. We're gonna we don't want to go into the well. We're not ready for the 40 years in the wilderness, right? But the the where progressivism goes too far is it starts to believe that all of the constraints are overcomable and in fact are evil. Right. That's the Gnostic tendency. That's the tendency to say, in fact, any structure that I use to achieve something is somehow inhibiting my full potential. Right. And that to experience my full potential, I have to get rid of all the structure. Right. Um, and and the reality it becomes is liberationism. Actually... That the idea is that the the essence of progress is liberation. It's yes. and and what and you very quickly learn that. And that's yeah. what you learn very quickly in a marriage that, oh, I, I want to be liberated from the constraints within the marriage. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you're going to open your door to some interesting things with that idea. Yeah. And yeah. I've seen so, it. I've seen it in real marriages that someone gets the idea. Oh, we're going to try polyamory. Oh, OK. Well, I'll talk to you in about a, two years and um, <laughs> you probably yeah. won't be together. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I've I've been around polyamorous communities, you know, for, through since my early tw uh, mid 20s. Right. And um i'm not impressed <laughs> i'll just say that right i i won't say that there's nobody who seems to be having a good time um but the closer i am to people who are in it the less attractive it looks but now but now take your idea and instead of you know this is a you know this is a critique of jordan as well the focus on the individual and now think about, let's say, the family as a unit and take that metaphor that you've just had and work that with the family. Mm -hmm. And and then and then the family's up there and work that with communities and, and work that intergenerationally. And and suddenly you begin to realize that um, you know, that we are sort of it's sort of fractaling up and down at the same time. And and what you just put your finger on, which I think is exactly right um we're also doing this together mm -hmm. and and we don't even we don't even know most of what we do we don't know what we're doing in terms of theory or consciousness we are running through programs that have been inherited these first drafts that we've had and but then along the process we're trying them out and but i i think that i think that dynamic that you just illustrated i think is is excellent and it's an excellent illustration of of this dynamic between let's say between you could say progressivism versus conservative but but it but those aren't you know it's not just that yeah so mary harrington shared this quote i can't remember the original author it's not her quote but it's that reactionaries are people who chase shades on the eternal hills <laughs> that in that sense she identifies as a reaction so huh. there's this in so you could say like you can you can very easily make a case that uh let's say that right now everyone we know who is polyamorous is really struggling to have a relationship but you could you could project a higher good where you could say hey that's just the that's the regression phase before the next progress now we can actually progress to a state of greater peace 
greater self-actualization, more love in the world by uh, by actually being able to stabilize at this higher degrees of freedom state that is associated with polyamory. Uh, polyamory. So I think someone like uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger would believe that, right? But then you could say that, that, but the flip side of that is that there are control parameters that sort of show up in every functional solution, right? And maybe monogamy is actually a control. Uh, th there is no, like, once you accept that there are constraints that can't be gotten rid of, then you, then you have to sort of like dialogue between this. Are we opening up in a way that's, that's opening degrees of freedom that can be opened and restabilized from, or degrees of freedom that actually have no stable state that are just loss of something of value, which, you know, if we go back to this idea of the, the traditional wisdom versus the updating problem, the traditional wisdom represents in some sense those bones that we can't, you know, you can't, you can't walk without the bones, right? And my sense as, as, uh, as Mary's is, as Louise Perry's is, as I assume yours is, is that, uh, is that monogamous marriage is one of these bones of Western civilization that is inescapable if we want to have the good things, right? That we, you know, just as like you need to throw well, you need disassociation between the shoulders and the hips. And there's no, there's no pathway to throwing well where you don't have both uh, a force coupling between these things and the capacity to disassociate them. Um, there's no pathway to really optimizing human relationships that doesn't rely on this, especially once we consider the interests of children. Yes, yes. Um, and, but the, the core thing that I was trying to get at here is So the, the conservative tendency is to say, there is this truth in the past, therefore we need to adopt the past perspective in total. That's where I think there's a problem. Yep. And, then and, the, and it's West, usually a conservative delusion. Delusion, yeah, let's call it. A, because I it's find a, conservatives imagine that. And I think you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't stand, you would, you would hate to live 300 years ago. You would hate it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so when I look at something like sex roles and sex relations, this is again like right in that Peugeot Weinstein interaction, right? Who was I talking to about this? I was like, and, and this is a, this is a point that that uh, that I got from Peterson actually that helped me in from a place of a pretty right wing alt alt-right like let's go back to traditional roles thing he says like it is a better world when we have all the best potential neurosurgeons and that means that you have to be able to search the female pool for neurosurgeons if you get rid of 50 percent of the population of potential neurosurgeons you just don't have as many neurosurgeons right if you oncology research uh, like you know cancer researchers do you want to like just not have you know Maybe there's an asymmetry. Maybe only 10% of the best uh, uh, cancer researchers are are women. But would you give up 10% of your best cancer researchers? Right, right. Is that, is that, and, and maybe there is a case that it's worth it for the benefits to children. But it's, but you have to recognize that there's a trade-off, that it's yeah. not so simple. Yeah. And, um, and so there's this, this reality. And like, I grew up with a father who, 
for all his wonderful characteristics, fundamentally didn't believe in trying to achieve a middle-class life. He wanted to live as a subsistence drug dealing hippie kid, right? And my my, my mom didn't want to do that. And her Understandably. didn't didn't want to live it, right? Yeah. We didn't want to be cold all the time. We wanted to be able to eat meat. We wanted to do these things. And so she went and got a job. She became a massage therapist and then she got her degree and became a, uh, uh, a, a ther- uh, psychologist, right? Psychotherapist. And I'm like, well, that freedom is really important, right? I mean, I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do in the world if I didn't have a partner who had been able to, a wife who had been able to work at Google and provide for the family while I was trying to build this, this very bizarre and unique brand. Yeah. Um, and so that you can see that there's a clear and obvious good that comes to the liberation of women to participate in the economic sphere. Yeah. It's a good that, uh, that, that women experience through their own uh, potential to protect themselves. Like this is something that I think the conservatives really, really struggle with men can be predatory, abusive, controlling, tyrannical, coercive. The the history of male coercion around female sexuality is real and intense and something that I don't think Jordan Peterson (laughs) talks about realistically. I don't think a lot of people in that space talk about it realistically. Um, so, So yeah, you want women to be able to say, no, I don't have to put up with you with marital rape i don't have to put up with abuse i don't have to put up with you drinking all the time because i can go get a job yep. and you want them to be able to provide that for their children yep. and uh, i think the vast majority of the culture has despite the back and forth basically as agreed i mean the the truth is there have been these changes that have happened and i, I think the most of society says you know we're better off women getting college degrees (laughs) we're better off you know that they can participate in that system i think you're right and yet i also think that i don't see the conservative articulation of an integrated vision that says this was good but it's sacrificing this other good and we need to find an integrated place i i think they might not articulate it but their actions are speaking louder than their words (laughs) that's true that's true, but then their words need to come to their actions in order in order to have a better story. Yeah, yeah. In order to be able to get to this next point, because because we're it's it, you know, I feel like we're still basically stuck fighting World War II and the the '60s counterculture revolution. We haven't yep, yep. learned the lessons from those two conflicts. No, um, and people are extremely alienated and hateful towards each other, right? Because of those things. Yeah. And and that requires, again, other processes. I mean, from my perspective of the dominant institution, so actually I, I watched Dave Rubin's talk with Brett Weinstein that Dave, Dave recorded a ton of things at ARC, recorded a little talk with Eric, recorded card, um, how to talk with Brett. And again, Brett is sort of full blore, all of our institutions. And it's like, 
No, the church is still out there and it is an institution. And in fact, it's there are multiple institutions and these issues are very much um, being being processed by churches as we go. And I, I wanted to come back to one point that we were talking about with monogamy. I think, you know, earlier I had talked about the fact that part of the blessings of monogamy is that it, it affords a far greater distribution of parenting. You can have smaller families and children can have relationships with both parents under a system which is predominantly um, monogamous, but monogamy does have its downsides and struggles. Um, yeah. Monogamy is aspirational, and and both sides often uh, struggle with it. Um, and but the the thing I wanted to point out is that part of the vision of Christianity, which which I I seldom hear too many people preach about or talk about, is if you look carefully at the kinds of things Jesus says and notes, and in fact, even in the life that he lived, part of what goes into Christian time telling. So the Bible tells time in very different ways. So there's the present age, sometimes the present evil age, and then there's the age to come. And and one of the things that I think if you if you read the gospels and you watch Jesus, Jesus is very clear about the fact that there are limitations of capacity within ages. So in other words, there are we we are only going to achieve certain things here. And a lot of our discussion about, oh, let's say polyamory or progressivism has to do with, you know, if we remove some things, can we have capacity for more things? And I think we've seen in the last couple of hundred years a tremendous success with capacity. But if you listen to someone like Paul Kingsnorth, then some of, some of the downside is also highlighted. And, and so we are in this age, within an age of some pretty significant trade-offs. Polyamory, if you decide you would like to sleep with whomever you wish, uh, there are going to be trade-offs with respect to that. And those trade-offs are probably going to be seen multi-generationally. Your children and your grandchildren will suffer um, because of decisions that you make. And every every parent knows that. Every parent understands that many of our decisions have trade-offs, which not only are realized by us in the now, but realized multi-generationally. And part of the vision of Christianity is that there are ages, there is an age to come where many of the limits on capacity that are imposed now, basically due to the fact that human beings without limitation tend to be enormously destructive of themselves and those around them, that as um, basically the, in, in terms of Christian theology, as Christ and God works basically with new ages come new capacity and there is hope for participation in these new ages and new capacities and that's something that is not afforded in a secular frame because basically all you're stuck with is 
let's see, my life and perhaps that of my progeny, or maybe some theoretical visions of humanity must be preserved. So um, I, I think, and I, I think that's an important thing to to recognize, partly because a lot of the changes that have happened in our culture have in some ways been leveraged by the inspiration of a multi-age vision. That sounds super theoretical. And maybe I just lost everybody in that. Well, but I think I think I see a through line because it was it was a little bit too theological for me for a sense there. But so you know I I describe myself I guess non-theistic Christian or um like a, a friend of mine is very kind of devout Christian in the parkour community asked me, are you a Christian? I was like, oh, depends, right? What do you mean? What do you mean by that word? I'm, I'm sort of Jordan Petersonian in that way. But what I would say is that I like, I, I'm very much intentionally attempting to be a follower of Christ at this stage of my life, but I'm not a practicing Christian in the sense that I don't do traditional Christian practice. I don't go to church and I have tried and I'm not sure that i may try again but i'm not sure that the level stick for me um but also i don't like i i don't i'm agnostic in some sense about the some of the supernatural or metaphysical commitments right did uh did christ die and and was resurrected right like for me that's uh it's not something I feel I could commit to a stance on, right? Like I, I, I think that it's very clear from a scientific materialism standpoint that that's a highly unlikely occurrence, right? You actually can't dismiss it and say that it's not possible at all, right? It just, we don't have the type of evidence that could answer that question for us. And the things that we have evidence for don't look like that's the type of thing that happens, right? And I, I and I think it's really important to be able to operate within that frame. Um, now I'm like working on Platonic realism and understanding what that means, and the idea that there are things that emanate from above and all that, and maybe maybe I'll end up somewhere else at the end of that. But uh, but that and this is sorry, this is I think one of the really interesting things about the conference is Ayn Hirsi Ali coming out for civilizational Christianity, and 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 Jonathan building a bridge saying whether you believe in the resurrection you have we're at a point where we have to recognize patterns as real in some sense and and the collapse of the good to these underlying patterns that to me is such a profound critique and I think we've been kind of dancing around it right because I was listening to your response to Ark earlier and you're talking about how a lot of it's about recovering liberalism but I think that we're we're struggling in some sense because we keep elevating different goods to the status of highest good that end up becoming tyrannical. I think liberalism is one of those things. And I think that what we're seeing is the idea of you have to liberate everything, right? Queer theory. That's that's liberalism as the highest good. And you know, I made this point to you at the conference, but there, you know, there's so much worship of free markets in the arc space and a lot of it's appropriate in the sense that they're pointing out 
functions the free market plays that things that have tried to replace it aren't doing well. And yet the social fabric they're trying to put back together is in some sense directly competing with the fundamental dynamics of a capitalist system. I think that's okay. I think we just have to understand that they're both goods that we need to seek and that there's a dynamic tension between them when we realize relevance in the middle and we put something up highest above them, right? But most uh, people who are promoting free markets, are, they're not totally free. Yeah. <laughs> you want you want your you want your government regulations and your central banks, et cetera, et cetera. There was a term of art in the IDW community uh, a few years ago that you liked, which was Jesus smuggling. There's a lot of Jesus smuggling in the good that we claim that we're trying to achieve, but don't articulate yep. in a lot of these spaces. Yep. I've lost my train of thought. Um, well, you you know, the what Jordan does with respect to Christianity and the future is oh, he yeah. tends to take it symbolically. And in a sense, the future is always either a, a potential for heaven or a potential for hell. Yeah. And, yeah. and that tends to be the way that this flows. And you can argue that part of what Christianity afforded, because it had a much more developed eschatology than, let's say, Judaism, especially in the, in the first century, is and Christianity sort of takes off on Jewish eschatology in the first century and continues to develop it. Is the future when when we when we think about the future, we we think you know it, it's difficult to know. It's difficult to know because the future just is pause you for one second. Yeah, a lot of my audience might be fairly secular. Eschatology is theory of the end times. Yes, yes, yes. The last things. It's sort of. It has to do with destination, ideals, mm -hmm. and part of the part of the dynamic of our ideals is that the ideals tend to have a gravitational effect. Yeah. If we have an ideal here, they pull us towards it. And because our ideals are so often so future oriented, the future pulls us into it. If we have this ideal of let's say if someone has an ideal of a large, I want to have five children so that I'm surrounded by 50 grandchildren in my old age. And, you know, I want to have a large house and I can watch them all play and they'll all have cousins. There's an idea that sort of pulls us into the future. And Christian ideals have been doing this for a very long time and they have shaped practices. Uh, many of the cities in the, in in the in the area established in New England were like New Haven, Connecticut. If you do some research on New Haven, Connecticut, it was modeled after this vision of the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. And so this this idea of transformational ages in the future has in many ways is in very many ways the product of, Christian ideals and visions of eschatology. And that's why this culture war, these progressives are, this is Christian progressivism yeah, yeah, in our it's culture. All, it's, all, it's all Christian heresy. Yes. Um, so this, this tension there between 
So I've thought for a long time that that Peterson is a kind of actually a double-edged sword, both towards the the evangelical Christianity, dogmatic Christianity that I experienced as a child, and towards the dogmatic secularism of the new atheists. And I think Peterson pulls his punches a little bit towards the the Christians because he uh, because he's more he's got more of an axe to grind with the, the new atheists. But I think that that ultimately what he actually articulates is uh, is radical for both. Um, and you know, I thought it was interesting in the Piers Morgan interview when he's really pushed on what he believes. I think he ends up basically saying he believes more or less what Verbeke believes. I think he describes, a, uh, I wanted to send that to John and say, hey, this is an, Jordan's just articulating non-theism there. That's but I think that what, what he's saying is we have to treat, you know, at the beginning of Maps of Meaning, he's basically saying religious stories contain a different type of truth. They don't contain objective truth. We can't treat them as containing objective truth. Um, and so if we are, so I think, you know, if you look at Agu Iroku or Miranda, I think Ewing, like, I think that when when I hear them, what I hear is that Christianity that says absolutely the resurrection happened. Absolutely. God created the earth in seven days. And in these other theories are 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 are, are misleading. And that to me is not it's not going to work. Um, when I think about like. Jordan talks a lot about the scene, the in Grand Inquisitor scene in Dost uh, in Brothers Karamazov, right? Yeah. Where Christ comes in and he 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 kisses the Inquisitor and you know won't speak to him and they leaves the door open and that and the idea being that like Christ's message was not actually achieved by the church, but they left the door open, and so as a you know, my, maybe I'm a Christian heretic myself, um, but from my heretical non-theist position, the way that I look at that message is sort of like, it's a mode of being which reveals a ki the kingdom of heaven in a functional sense, hmm. right? Not, not in a, not in a, um, I, I won't say that, that I, that I dismiss the idea of a future time because time is weird when we get into physics, right? Like, you know, there's a point at which like the universe is completely unrecognizable and we don't know how patterns persist across that or what it will look like on the other side of that. But that's all very speculative, right? But the fundamental thing for me is that if you take on the idea of loving the world, right? As, um, as you love something that by loving it, you bring its being out and forth. If you take on that idea, that is the pathway to the kingdom of heaven. It's revealed before you, right? Um, and that's why I think, like, I, that's where I end up in a disagreement with Brett Weinstein, because I, I do feel like, or even John, because I feel like that is the limit case, that there's not, you're not going to get beneath that story. Um, that, that is ultimately how we have to act. And uh, it was interesting. I had this discussion with with Brett and Heather, where we were talking about uh, the, the all the energy and environment talk, and how there's a there's a tension between the pro energy policy, which says, "Hey, if we utilize energy, we can preserve the natural world," and the pro energy thing that says, "Really, we don't, the only thing that we care about is how well humans are doing, and if the polar bears die, the polar bears die." 
And Brett was making the case that a kind of secular humanism orientation towards long-term human flourishing recovers the need to preserve the orcas. And I don't buy it, <laughs> right? Like I don't, I think there are some people for whom their innate sense of what a human flourishing looks like will guide them to that. But I think there are other people for whom it's impossible to understand the aesthetic drive yeah. to have orcas. Yeah, yeah. And there's no way that you would sacrifice that, right? If, if, it, if you could have 10 million more humans who are living, you know, satisfying lives and no orcas or orcas and not those 10 million human beings, that's not even a question in their mind. It's 100% what they're, what they're going to do. So I don't think that, that the, the secular humanist thriving recovers the orcas. I do think that if you say that the world is good, right? God created the world and said it was good. And that we were tasked to, 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 um, to, to garden the world, to garden it, to garden it, um, care for it, develop care it, care for it. And that our fundamental hands. duty is to love, yep. Yep. right? Yep. To love even our enemies. That that recovers the orcas because yep. it's our job to to be the custodians to be the the, the type of animal that can love all the other animals. Yeah, love in a way that they can't even to. love themselves. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. To, to choose their capacity for being. Yeah. You know, I've been I've, I've I've said a few things about my dad in this interview that are probably not very nice, right? Or, or <laughs> haven't painted him in the best light. But my dad really was a brilliant man. I just published a, a, a memorial to him on my Substack, And um, what my dad said was, my dad was raised in the Catholic church and he left the Catholic church to become, you know, uh, a member of the counterculture. He traveled in India and spent time in ashrams and, you know, had sculptures of Ganesh all over his house. But what he said was that we are here to be gardeners of Eden. And that was really at the fundamental aspect of, of his orientation. He told me once that he wanted to create houses that created more habitat than they destroyed. So he had living roofs on his houses. He built things out of mud and straw and clay, right? And he used found wood, right? Uh, as much as possible, he was actually going out and, and taking wood that the timber companies had left behind mm. because it was warped and weird and deformed timber. And then he was building these fantastic sculptures out of it and to me that was like when i when i fully sort of comprehended that i was like that's that's the vision yeah and in some sense i think that but that was tolkien's vision yeah lewis's vision yeah and so it comes tolkien from genesis lewis, it comes from genesis the book of genesis yeah. that's the vision that's the vision yeah you know it's 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 The Christianity that I experienced was associated with this idea of human dominion, right? Mm -hmm. And that everything that we did to the earth was sort of our right to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so it was pro, you know, wipe your ass with a, uh, with a spotted owl. <laughs> No. <laughs> I don't know if I want that beak anywhere near my private parts. <laughs> <laughs> there was a there was a coalition 
behind the sort of frontier extraction culture, the evangelical culture, yep. the pro-corporate yep. and the pro-hawk culture. That yep. was the right-wing coalition of my childhood. Yeah. You know, and, it was, and there was an eschatology associated with that as well. Oh, yeah. Yes, the eschatology is it doesn't matter because right. we're all in the kingdom of heaven. Right. Because the which earth I is think, disposable and the fullness thereof. Yeah, which I think is, to me, it's really, you know, obviously I'm not nearly as deep in the style of the Bible as you are, but it seems fundamentally mistaken. It seems like what the Bible is saying is that this is it, right? Well, yes. Well, this is it. And then... I mean, it's the renewal of heaven and earth. It's the renewal, yeah. It's not the disposal. Yeah. It's the renewal. Yeah. And and that means that I think I think Lewis gets into that. I I I think the the best one of the better works of if someone wants a a good imagistic primer in Christian eschatology, C.S. Lewis's last the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. Is mm-hmm. in some ways the best, yeah, yeah, because it it'll it'll give it'll give an image of the fact that you've got old Narnia and new Narnia, and there's a new capacity that comes with new Narnia. There's a new capacity that comes with the new heavens and a new earth. And part of the reason for that capacity is that we have demonstrated. Jesus says, you know, those who are faithful and little will be given much to be stewards of, basically. And we have demonstrated our stewardship over this world and over our relationships with each other. And uh, yeah, God has good reasons to be a little suspicious about of what we have done given our track record. Yeah. So, so, so the new, um, new humanity with a new heavens and a new earth is given more power, not less, but uh, greater responsibility, not less, but that new humanity will have greater wisdom not less and that's all part of the transformation that so we have to get into to this new, new age that wisdom right yes and and to go back to the review of arc right um i've, I've taught thought about this idea of a mythos of escape and a mythos of recovery and this is where like I, I really like some of uh of eric weinstein's insights but i think fundamentally he's within the mythos of escape Right, that his, you know, he sees the eschaton as 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 the interstellar civilization, right? And I just don't think that solves anything about our stewardship of the earth. Right. I just I think it's it's fine. Like I'm not against it. Like okay, whatever. I just don't think that I don't think that anything that you put on another planet would be human. Um, it would be recognizably human, and it's so far away that it would have no impact on the lives of people who are here. So we are, we are, I, I don't look like we're here forever, right? Human beings are earthlings and can only be earthlings as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so we, I don't, we can't digitize ourselves and escape, right? If we try to, if we try to achieve the transhumanist goal of sort of altering ourselves beyond imagination, I think that's, I think that's hell. I think that's a utterly destructive city. Um, it's complete madness. Um, and so what, you know, what Tolkien talked about in Long Fairy Tales, which I need to read again, um, is this idea that we go to those to, for this idea of recovery, right? Which is recovering the right relationship with this world, the right relationship between men and women, between uh, adults and children, and between us and the earth. And I think that's the better story. And I think that 
the, what what was served at ARC, um, it's sort of a cultural Christianity that's groping towards that, but isn't yet articulated. A, a broken down, modernized Christianity that really doesn't actually have much aspirational to it. And then a, yeah, a warmed up <laughs> liberalism that, that doesn't understand the fundamental problems that are causing it to break down. Um, and I think that for me, I would like to see uh, to see ARC kind of continue to grow into the better story. What I would like to see is Charles Eisenstein and Daniel Schmachter and Brett Weinstein and myself up there communicating about some of those ideas. And I would like to see uh, a depolarization track because if you're going to bring in all these conservative thinkers, conservative politicians, uh, you're cutting off the potential for the coalition that can actually achieve these things unless you do something very proactive to counteract it and the embodiment track. Well, I think uh, I think um, you can feel feel free to feel free to do the conference that you think needs to be done. I think <laughs> that would be a good thing. And I <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, I'll get invited to other people's conferences. I did a couple conferences; they almost killed me. Oh, um, yeah, they are. They are. Um, they are. But I think I I, I think that I I was I left less skeptical than I came to ARC because I do think there is just as Jordan asked you for a critique. And I think Jordan with, with all of my conversations with Jordan um, when he has asked me, I mean, I would often see him after an event and he'd say, what did you think of the event? I, I think he's, I think he's very much in good faith. I think he wants to, he, he wants to get feedback. He wants to, and and I think the issues that that we're talking about are not they're not unknown to some of the people that are developing this, but the process of building coalitions and finding finding partners that one of the things that I've been most encouraged about in terms of the creation of this little corner has been we we have partners who we don't agree with on everything, but we we at least create enough of a platform between us that all of us feel that we come from our we come from our conversations with even with all those with whom we disagree feeling i've gained more and and i think fundamental to this is in fact i think the insight that you articulated earlier with respect to agopic love that in fact it is love you go to a conference like this in order to love to love your those who your rivals or your adversaries, or at least those who you disagree with, and then to engage productively with them in order to leave then hopefully understanding them better. Hopefully they might understand us better. And then I, I think it is in fact love that creates the capacity by which we can all together move into the future more productively and with less with less loss yeah that's a i'm just thinking like if arc had was framed around that idea right if arc was the if there was like how do we love the positive of western civilization better yeah 
how do men and women love each other better? How do men and women love children better? How do we love the natural world better? Right? Yep. How do we love humanity and the natural world? Yep. And how do we solve the tension between those? Yep. 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 And if that was, if that was the frame, I, I would. I think that'd be very, very interesting. Yeah, I think that. I think that would have. Because because there was a sense of there there was a sense of antagonism and rivalry and conflict, and yeah. I think if we had had love, they could have sort of said, "All right, we have differences, but you know the truth is every marriage has both rivalry, antagonism, and hopefully love, and it is the love that helps the people work through their rivalry and antagonism." And that sounds strange to people because people say, well, don't you, don't you, don't you marry someone you love? Oh, yes, but you will find the rivalry and antagonism once you live together. Trust me, you will. It is there. <laughs> and then you have the challenge. Okay, what do we do now? And hopefully um, we all grow out of it. So grow through it. So maybe that's a good place to land the plane unless you had something no, I think I, 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 I had a thought, and I think that it's better to stop there. I think that that was that's the perfect place to stop. It is well, Rafe. It you know, it's been it's been far too long since we've spoken, and so yeah. it, to me, it was just a, a delight. And and again, really part of the blessings of that conference, where you know, I, I got it. We got a chance to spend more time together than I can't. I can imagine we ever would have. Um, you know, otherwise, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Several hours of in-person time was really cool. And, yeah. uh, and it's that, that capacity for connection and relationship that drives our our, our ability to understand each other better and uh, show up for each other better in the world. Yeah. So thank you for being there. And um, thank you for uh, for inviting me on or me inviting you on, I guess. Well, I will <laughs> send this to you. And yeah. Um, and yeah, and then we'll, the, then we'll see where this goes. Okay. All right, uh, great. Yeah. Have a good day. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.